Babylon is an important term. There's 404 verses in the book of Revelation, and 44 of those verses refer to Babylon. That's about 11% of the book of Revelation. So for God to devote that much time to Babylon, we should pay attention. And God knew that people in every age and every dispensation throughout the course of human history could be confused through religion, through false religion. And so like Jerusalem, which is the city of God, this coming place, Babylon will be the city of the Antichrist, the city of the evil one. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part two of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, The One World Religion Reset. Yesterday, Pastor Carl addressed the perversion of religious Babylon, and in today's sermon, the second characteristic Pastor Carl addresses is the power of religious Babylon. Revelation chapter 17 verse 3 says, And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. Today, we will see that that woman represents a united system of religion. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he continues. So they have a three-stage plan, and these three sayings led us. First, let us build a city. That's a social goal. The very thing that God told them not to do, I want you to spread out and fill the earth. They said, no, we're going to congregate and build our own little city. Secondly, let us build a tower. We'll see in a moment that's a religious goal. And third, let us build a name for ourselves. That's a psychological goal. It's ego-driven. So they have a social, a spiritual, and a psychological goal. And it's not about God, it's about them. It's very much like what Nebuchadnezzar said in his Babylon In Daniel 4.30, he went out, looked at his kingdom, and he said, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Even so, the coming Antichrist will do the same in his Babylon. And so there will be a one-world religious Babylon, and there will be a one-world governmental economic Babylon. Now, I don't think, as some people paint these folks, that they're just a bunch of ignoramuses. That they think they can build some tower that can literally reach into the throne room of God. Now, if you look at the text carefully, and you have the NASB, you will notice the words, will reach. You see it there? Those are added by the translators to make it read a little bit more smoothly and less wooden when you go from Hebrew into English. But literally... It reads, whose top into heaven. And so sometimes words, when they're added, while they're helpful, they can cloud the meaning. In other words, the top of the tower was dedicated to the universe because this is a system of worship. They had denied God and they were worshiping the God of creation. Think your way through this for a moment. Towers, as you read of them in Scripture, They're often seen as places of lookout, places for protection, to ward off your enemies or to spot them as they are approaching. But that's not what's in view here. I mean, who's going to attack them? They're all one people. They're all in unison. They don't have any enemies at this point. 
So this is not some group of people who are literally trying to build some tower that will come into the throne room of God. These are people who have a religious motivation. And most of you, if you've studied astrology, you will know that this is really the first picture of a ziggurat. If um, people write about the history of uh, astrology or the history of the zodiac, where do they always go back to? The Babylonians. They say that's the Genesis. Or sometimes they'll say the Chaldeans, which is another name for the Babylonians. But really it goes back even further, specifically to this man named Nimrod. This is the first attempt at a unified religion where man basically is deifying himself and the creation and rebelling against God. And that's precisely what the Antichrist is going to do in mystery Babylon. Look at verse five. God now puts man in his place. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men have built. God through Moses, in essence, is mocking the tower. He's saying God came down to see it as if he were unaware. God sees all. He's just wanting to underscore and emphasize the ludicrous nature of man's puny little pride that somehow he can escape an all-living, all-powerful God. And so notice this conversation that unfolds in the Trinity, starting in verse 6. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people. They all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose will be impossible for them. Man's a little too big for his britches. So God steps in. They're not scattered as he commanded them. They're not obeying me. They're defying me. They're fortifying themselves. They're not moving out as I commanded. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. They agreed that they were in one accord. So there's no real checks or balances. People, especially missionaries, sometimes get frustrated with all the languages in the world. But they are actually a blessing from God Almighty. Because if we all spoke the same language universally, that would actually foster and promote the cause of evil. And so the fact that there are so many languages in the world actually slow down the spread of evil. And so we read here in verse seven, come let us, circle that plural pronoun. Who's the us? This is the triune God. He has already introduced himself in Genesis one in the opening verse, the way the Hebrew is structured. And then later in Genesis, let us make man in our image, not angels. No, that's the triune God having this conversation. Let us go down and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So here is this proud people. They think they have it all together. They've plotted the heavens. They've made their own zodiacs. But in the process, they have forgot God. And since their tongues are praising themselves how great they are, instead of the God who gave them their tongues, God confuses their speech. One man says, hand me a brick. What do you say? What do you say? And they can't understand one another. And so the architects are trying to put their heads together to work out the engineering problems, and no one can seemingly understand one another. And based on chapter 10 
It's clear that various languages had been distributed. One of the things that Moses does is sometimes he'll unfold a picture and then he'll describe it in the chapters that follow. And so in Genesis 10, you have the table of nations. I preached a whole sermon on it. It's not filler. It's critically important to understand much of the rest of the Bible. And then in Genesis 11, he tells us how we got to the table of nations. So what would you do? You would go home to your little enclave And those are the people you understood and you could communicate with. And you hung with them. And that's significant. And so we read a little bit further here in verse 8. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. And so they went home, they pulled away, they lived within their little conclaves. And by the way, that's how we get the various nations, the goyim, the ethnoi. And so we have Japanese people and Chinese people and African people and European people. We're from one blood. He created from one man. But as you married within your conclaves and you married long enough, you would begin to develop particular racial features. The races are not a product of evolution. They are a product of what God did at the Tower of Babel. And so the Lord scattered them. How did he scatter them? We're not told. But God could move them dramatically. He moved Philip from one city to another city miles away in the the twinkling of an eye, so to speak. And it may be at this time, this is when God not only scattered them to different places, but then broke up the continents. You look at the continents, and they look like they fit together as big puzzle pieces. Now, I wouldn't be dogmatic that this is when it happened, but I won't be surprised when I get to heaven to find out this is when it happened. Look at the summary statement in verse 9. Therefore, its name was called Babel. And in most languages, even in English, it just means confusion. I'm not sure why this language program is called Babel. I think it's supposed to be designed to help you to speak a language, but it means confusion. Maybe they're stupid. I don't know. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. So this is not by accident that the final one world government under a one world leader is referenced as Babylon here in Genesis, here in Revelation uh, chapters 18 and 19. So go back there to Revelation 17, 18 and 19, and we're going to focus on a few verses in chapter 17. So when Nimrod built the city, its name was called Babel, or some of your English Bibles say its name was called Babylon. It's the same word. It's found 233 times in the Hebrew text, and almost always it's translated Babylon. And in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, 100% of the time, same word is used. And so what happened to the Tower of Babel that God stopped he is going to allow it to unfold through this coming leader known as the Antichrist. And God will ultimately judge them. Just as God judges religious Babylon and economic Babylon, the Nimrods of this world cannot escape the judgment of God. And in 17 and 18, you see how God unfolds that judgment. So with that said, that's all by way of introduction. (laughs) Uh, You have a note-taking outline. Let's first think about the perversion of religious Babylon. There are three characteristics of religious Babylon that I want you to get. And the first concerns the perversion of religious Babylon here in 
Revelation 17, beginning in verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here. I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Now remember, the chapter and verse divisions are artificial to help us to find our way around, but sometimes they can be distracting. Because sometimes if we don't go back to the preceding verses, we miss the context and the flow. If you look back at chapter 16 and verse 19, God just said, Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. So Babylon the great is the theme of chapters 17 and 18. And God remembers this place, this institution, religiously and economically, in his wrath. And so the woman in this chapter, if you read the whole chapter, she's described as the great harlot. And God uses the picture of a woman who is immoral to describe what is unfolding religiously. That they are guilty of spiritual fornication or spiritual immorality. You might want to put out in the margin next to verse 1, Revelation 14 and verse 8. Revelation 14, 8, God has already said, and another angel, a second one, followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, same place. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. And so the devil's counterfeit false church is like a harlot and foolish sinners will go to her. And in seducing them, they are acting like a prostitute. And of course, the New Testament uses the same kind of terminology in other places. Throughout the Old Testament, God likens Israel sometimes in their rebellion to harlotry. James, we studied the book of James not long ago. And in James 4.4, he says, you adulteress. It's the same theme, it's a different word. Uh, the word for adultery, morcalis. You adulteress, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. When the world steals away your affection and you follow the teachings of the world, you're committing, James says, spiritual adultery. Or what John says, spiritual fornication. Verse 2, I want you to see the extent of this harlot's seduction with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality. And those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. So it's not by accident the kings of the earth, who are described in chapter 18, who run this governmental entity under the leadership of the Antichrist, is wed together with this spiritual Babylon. Because there's a, a, a synergism that comes as they feed off of one another. And again, he's describing these world leaders who are drunk or intoxicated by the teaching of this false religion. Now think about it. The church is gone. The church has been caught up. And so the salt of the world, the light of the salt of the earth, the light of the world is gone. Salt preserves righteousness. Light dispels darkness. It's gone. And so there's a certain freedom for wickedness that will unfold. And so this slick seductress comes alongside and takes advantage. There's no dissenting voices. They're gone. And it's not until after the treaty is signed that God will seal and save 144,000 Jews who will start preaching the gospel. 
And so even today, there are people who in some respects are helping to build this coming one world religion. I was behind a car coming out of my neighborhood the other day, and it said, coexist, you know, with all those world symbols behind it. That's religious Babylon, now in microcosmic form, but it is unfolding even in our day. Here's a picture of John Paul II. By the way, a major shift happened in Roman Catholic theology under this particular pope because he began for the first time to make efforts to syncretize the religions of the world. And so in 1986, he had a meeting in Assisi, Italy, for all the religious leaders of the world to pray for peace. He brought snake worshipers, he brought fire worshipers, he brought spiritists, he brought animists, he brought Buddhists, Muslims, Hindus, North American Indian witch doctors, and all the major world religions were represented. Let me read some of his proclamation that he made to the people in 1986. He said, I have the honor and pleasure of welcoming all of you for our world day of prayer in this town of Assisi. Let me begin by thanking you from the bottom of my heart for the openness and goodwill with which you have accepted my invitation to pray at Assisi. The coming together of so many religious leaders to pray is in itself an invitation today to the world to become aware that there exists another dimension of peace and another way of promoting it, which is not the result of negotiations, political compromises, or economic bargaining. It is a result of prayer, which in the diversity of religions expresses a relationship with a supreme power that surpasses our human cap capacities alone. And so as you read the whole document, it becomes clear that he felt like there was a spiritual energy that could be unleashed as all these world religions came and prayed. Did he say that there is one intercessor between God and man, Christ Jesus? No, not at all. He affirmed that they had access to God through their religious systems, just as he did. In fact, he allowed the Dalai Lama of Tibet, whom he became great friends with, there in the Catholic Church in Assisi, to come and to put a symbol of their religion on the altar, and then all these Sintoists came and chanted and rang bells around it. Here's a picture of Pope Benedict XVI, in 2001, he called the people back to Assisi, Italy. As the next picture shows, he gathered over 300 religious leaders to mark the 25th anniversary. If you look carefully, you'll see him in his little white robe. And of course, um, uh, what he did there was a violation of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And of course, what he was doing there as he invited all these religious leaders to come, is he was sowing seeds for this coming one world religion that the scriptures speak of. Uh, here's a picture of Pope Francis, and he stated just a few years ago, and I quote, most people in the world identify to be believers. This should lead us to dialogue among the world's religions. We should not stop praying for it and collaborating with those who think differently. Many think differently, feel differently, seeking God or meeting God in different ways. But there is one certainty that we have for all and that we are all children of God. Really, I didn't know that, Mr. Pope. 
John, who gives us the gospel of John, says, but as many as received him, contextually Jesus, to them he gave the right to become, because they weren't before, to become children of God, even to those, that is, to those who believe in his name. And yet he argued that we're all children of God, and as you read the whole proclamation, that we all have access to God. No, we don't. In fact, since this pope has been in office on over 20 different occasions, he has brought together world religious leaders to promote a world unity in religion. Here's Pope Francis again. This was in 2020. He is hugging the Grand Amman of Al-Hazar, and together they sign, quote, the document on human fraternity for world peace and living together, in which they agreed. One document, they both put their signature on the bottom, a Muslim and a Catholic. The first and most important aim of religions is to believe in God, to honor him, and to invite all men and women to believe that this universe depends on a God who governs it. The pluralism and the diversity of religions are willed by God in his wisdom through which he created human beings. They agreed that all religions were willed by God. Now, wait a minute, Mr. Pope. You claim Peter was your first pope. What about what Pope Peter said in Acts 4 and verse 12? And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Peter affirmed, the New Testament affirms, the Old Testament affirms that any other God than the God of the Bible is a false God. Now, here's Pope Francis just last week in Kakistan. And, of course, he was the lead person pictured here dead center in the Seventh Congress of World and Traditional Religions. The top 30 religions of the world were invited in terms of all their leaders, and there were thousands of participants who came to this conference. Um, Here pictured is the... UN secretary giving a speech. It was, I looked at that conference room. I thought, man, this is a beautiful conference room. And then behind it, you have thousands of people. So here is a UN secretary general speaking uh, to all these uh, world religions. And he's representing the world governments. Remember, the two are going to come together. And we'll see that before this text is finished. And he said this, I am pleased to greet the Seventh Congress of World and Traditional Religions. We count on faith actors to use their moral voice and spiritual authority to promote mutual respect, compassion, and unity, to resolve differences peacefully, to recognize diversity as richness, to stand in solidarity with one another and with generations to come. Now, I read the final document that each of these heads of 30 major world religions signed, including the Pope, and not once, not once, does the name Jesus appear. Not once. Here's the Pope speaking at the same conference. And when he gave his address, not once did he mention the name of Jesus. I thought you're the vicar of Christ. And you can't name Jesus? Why can't you stand up for Jesus? It's as Jesus said, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. 
But I guess you couldn't really stand up for Jesus because you put your signature, Mr. Pope, on the 35 affirmations of their declaration. Let me read just one of their affirmations. It's number 10. It says, quote, we note that pluralism in terms of differences in skin color, gender, race, language, and culture are expressions of the wisdom of God in creation. Now, there's a lot of things I've said this morning, some things that are true, but that's the way the devil works. He disguises himself as an angel of light. But listen, goes on to say, number 10, religious diversity is permitted by God And therefore, any coercion to a particular religion and religious doctrine is unacceptable. Mr. Pope Francis signed that document. That any coercion, any proselytizing to a particular religion is unacceptable. Wait a minute, I thought Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Don't you believe that, Mr. Pope? And let me just be clear here. I'm not here to bash Catholics. As a former Roman Catholic, I have a deep burden to see Roman Catholics come into the kingdom. In fact, if anyone does the bashing, it's not evangelicals. It's the Roman Catholic Church itself because in the Council of Trent, which was their response to Luther's 95 Theses, over 100 times they lay anathemas, damnations, to Bible-believing Christians. And by the way, that document was reaffirmed at Vatican I, at Vatican II, and then at the College of Cardinals in 2010. It still stands as a dogma of the church. Now back here, look at verse 2 of Revelation 17. And those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. So after the rapture, Catholics will carry on, as will liberal Protestants, as will Mormons and Hindus and Buddhists and Taoists and Zoroasterism, and they'll all continue on. And they'll come together. Now that's the perversion of religious Babylon. Secondly, there in your outline, let's think for a moment about the power, the power of religious Babylon. We are told now, beginning in verse 3, and he carried me away in the spirit into, the, into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. That should sound a little familiar to you. You might want to put Revelation 13:1 in the margin. We studied this three weeks ago. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore, and then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems. This verse is similar to Revelation 17.3. Symbolic language. Remember in the opening verse, God communicated, he signified, he signed, S-I-G-N, signified the book of Revelation in symbols. And I won't take the time, but we explored why God did that. Most of the symbols are interpreted within Revelation itself or from some Old Testament passage. And so if you look down at verse 9 of the chapter that's open, in both passages, this beast, this antichrist is symbolically described as having seven heads and its explanation is found. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. 
If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program God's Prophetic Schedule 016. If you have a question that you would like to ask Pastor Brogy personally, you can do that on Tuesdays between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. You can listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.